you wondering where my sermons went or where Saturday morning chill went? Well, sorry, it wasn't really clear about this in every avenue. I figured most of you would find me if you wanted to. But if you are looking for those things, they've just diverged into new podcasts. So you'll have to search iTunes or Spotify for Saved. That'll get you the sermons of Pastor Fisk. And uh, Stop the White Noise with Jonathan and Meredith. That's the Saturday morning show. It is available in audio, again, in Spotify or iTunes. Stop the White Noise and Saved. You should check them out. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Kuntz, what is the role of violence in the Christian's life, particularly in an age of upheaval, barbarianism, and or the need for self-defense? Not to imply that we necessarily live in such times at this moment, but for the sake of the consciences out there, uh, what happens when you have to defend yourself? What is the role? It's not something about which a Christian should be... um... I think feel particularly conflicted. I think the reason that that people feel unusually conflicted or that violence is its own category of analysis is because the 
the uses of violence, which are for the purposes of government, especially of wild things and wild people, have been so much outsourced in modern life that the idea that you would use violence either to you know cut up an animal that you've killed or to stave off an attacker all of that is so strange you know the the meat comes prepackaged and drained of all the blood uh, and wrapped in plastic for you and of course the police will always come when you call them so in itself it is something that you should simply look at as a tool not a tool for the exercise of your rage, particularly because I think like we talked about previously, rage and hatred and, and anger are things that are understandable. They simply are not generally useful, especially when it is your calling as a father, for example, to protect your family. You need to take care of the situation. You don't need to feel any particular way about it at the time. So violence, like the tools that can be violent productively, like guns, are just that. They're tools, and they should be used appropriately to protect innocent life, to stave off wickedness, and to provide. That's what violence is for, whether it's against animals or humans. So I don't find violence to be particularly strange. It just is it's something that needs to be limited. It's a limited tool useful for the kinds of things that men especially are called to do, to provide and to protect. As you point out, it, it is strange. It is alien to the modern life, the, the Western couch potato life, however you want to describe it. I think your description of food in the store is, is very, very helpful in kind of showing, um, again, how alienated we are from the normalness of violence. And so when we also see then that government's role is primarily violence, uh, what does one, how does one positions one's heart, one's, one's mind gird up their, their loins as it were to recognize that the sword, which is used to punish evil has begun to punish good. Yeah. I mean, it has, it has been punishing goodness, obviously. I mean, I, I think one of the one of the greatest difficulties I encounter in discussing questions like this with people in our own church is the role of cliches in Lutheran minds. That is that they they insulate against thought. So, for example, if you say that government bears the sword, okay, everyone admits that, and then you know maybe you want to say that the government is doing something illegitimate. Well, then you have the cliche: well, everyone's a sinner, and there are only sinful people in government. And of course, that is true. That's a given. That's not, I'm not really asking whether there are going to be sinful people in government. I'm trying to limit the extent of human sin. I think in our theological terms, the question of the first use of the law, which we teach in catechism class as the curb, and its disappearance in life, that is people feel free to do and to be whatever they want to, and most of that is actually blessed by our media and our regime. That is something for which cliches are completely unhelpful. I am not saying that in 1961, America or American government were free of sinners. I'm saying in 1961, we were still prosecuting people for murdering unborn children. We don't do that now. 
In fact, we say that that is maybe one of the highest goods so that you can realize your potential as a woman. And that means slaughtering your own children. So the government for a very long time, certainly on the federal level, has very carefully protected and will even perjure and try to ruin the lives of men like Robert Bork or Clarence Thomas, where some perceived threat to the regime of child murder is seen to exist, especially on the Supreme Court. So when we think about, okay, well, what kind of violence is our regime engaged in? the ways in which people have been unlawfully and unconstitutionally detained throughout the year because of what happened at the beginning of this year are not in themselves new. Our our regime has for a very long time been very comfortable with the sacrifice of the innocent. That is beginning to extend, I think, simply to larger groups of people. So then to, in a very important way, it is to pursue violence to seek election to an office of the land for the sake of attempting to restore the idea of justice to government, whatever level that might be. So from the right to bear arms and defend the castle of your home, there's a step up that isn't you know, police your own streets uh, as a vigilante, but indeed maybe is police your own streets uh, as a policeman or, or whatnot. Um, and is that then what we've been advocating that the, the listener do, that they find the place in their environment where they can rightly bear the sword? Yeah, I think you have to think about the future, especially where it is so unclear as it is for us and you know, we will be clear about this <laughs> in this week's episode and next week's that that it's simply unclear and no one is receiving special revelation concerning what's going to happen in March 2022 or November 2022. So in view of that, maybe think of this as having two tracks. One are one track is all available solutions within the system as currently extant, assuming that it still continues to exist as such for some you know, foreseeable future, okay? In which case, better our people, better good people, better godly people in positions of authority than otherwise, right? Better participation than grumpy or terrified non-participation. Okay, better acceptance of responsibility than refusal to accept responsibility, but you still get all the consequences of the fact that someone else has responsibility and not you. Inside the system, yes. Also outside the system, simply because in instances where law and order has broken down, also already in the United States, in the case of the use of what are called, I think, euphemistically security services. What if this were Iraq or Afghanistan or, you know, South Sudan would be called private military contractors already in places like Portland, you have in Seattle, you have the use of privately contracted groups to protect people. So in those cases where the cops simply are not coming, this has happened for decades in South Africa with the murder of white farmers, the cops simply are not coming, you do have to be prepared to protect yourself. And that is actually historically, like so much else that we discuss on this show that people are surprised by, that's actually historically normal in America. 
I mean, the notion of a vigilante is to some degree a slander on the common law practice dating back to Anglo-Saxon times of a posse comitatus, which gets together in order to protect the peace that is not being protected because historically we just didn't have that much law enforcement. I mean, there are plenty of places, especially in rural areas, probably not today, but maybe 30 years ago, where the only cop in the entire county is the sheriff. (laughs) So, you know, you have to be prepared for that situation to return if it does. And it may return in a suburban area. You may not have to be in a county with some incredibly low population density for that to happen in the future, because, you know, in the case of a South Africa or a Zimbabwe, formerly Rhodesia, law and order can collapse also in cities. Absolutely. And at that point, yeah, go ahead. I think this is where, though, for our listener base, for our church body, definitely, um, it's just it's too much for the mind to grasp. What do you do when protecting the peace is, in fact, against the law, right? So so you're in a suburb. There are no uh, ways that the local law enforcement handle anything that is pertaining to your safety. Uh, to, for the, the average LCMS member to, like, consider forming a posse to defend the neighborhood, I mean, this is just yeah. like lunacy. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that has to do partly with the disadvantage of being an immigrant church. That is, you have always existed in an America where the rule of law generally did prevail. And therefore, you entered into a set of social and political arrangements and consensuses that you did not make. And that is true for almost everybody who got here after the Civil War you have to realize that that is that along with the prosperity that has attended that is not in fact historically normal and just accept that okay it's not historically normal not in america prior to the civil war after which we we industrialize cities get large we have police forces all of that you know is pretty new in the whole scheme of things but it's certainly not historically normal in other countries. So the idea that local people have no responsibility for their own safety or security just is not historically normal. So I'm not saying go out and form your posse today. They're all coming for you. I'm saying, why don't you get ready for things that are far more likely than the idea that you can somehow flee to a place where you can just preserve 1987 forever. Again, I'm with you. Uh, it's just the struggle is theologically with the conscience that to defend yourself is increasingly becoming illegal in places like Illinois. So you're not only in the the, the leaving the not normal of prosperity and protection, but mm-hmm. you're not returning to the more normal of well, we just defend ourselves because that's what humans do. Yeah, yeah, like and you're going to be I prosecuted that... for defending yourself. I, I think that that is. That is whatever else it comes from inside the history of the Lutheran Church. That is simply a misunderstanding of the weight that governmental pronouncements should have in your mind. Okay. That is obviously not the attitude of the Israelites when they are in exile, either in Babylon or Persia, that government dictates simply have that weight when they obviously conflict with natural and divine law, okay? So I'm not allowed to protect my children from this man who's breaking into my home with a gun. Well, I will accept the consequences of the fact that the state of Illinois or something thinks that what I'm about to do is illegal. 
that those are just the consequences attendant upon the practice of righteousness. I cannot let the government have that kind of control over my mind and the conflation of what is legal with what is godly is one of the worst conflations that we have made, at least implicitly in the Lutheran church. I didn't see it on mass until 2020. I didn't see it demonstrated. I, f- I felt that it was there, that people are conditioned to just sheer obedience. I didn't see that it was there until 2020. You wanted to think that our faith would would defend us against it in some way, right? Yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you don't know the Bible, I mean, if, if, you're, if your framework for dealing with the government has nothing to do with what happens in the book of Daniel or the book of Esther, then yeah, you, you, have, you have no framework. You just have a set of kind of abstract principles derived from one time when your pastor told you a little bit about Romans 13, one to seven. Okay, so this, he, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, finish that. And he, at the time, wasn't thinking about, is the government gonna try to close my church because I'm a public health threat? He was just talking abstractly because it had never mattered. Or the times when it did matter were lost in the before time when everyone spoke German. So you forgot they tried to close all of your schools in the states of Oregon, Nebraska, and Wisconsin at one time. Nobody remembered that. So you lost your historical memory of those things specifically happening. And you may not have known, and your pastor may not have known, that none of this is historically normal. This consensus that we will allow people to worship according to the dictates of their conscience, that's not normal. You know, my passion when I talk about these things is driven by a sense of just how unusual and precious these things have been. So let me take us out of the frying pan into the fire and and really push the envelope here with the idea that modern Lutheranism so conceived means talking abstractly about things the Bible speaks about concretely. That is a very big part of the problem, is a lack of the sense that especially the stories in the Bible are written for our instruction. And it's notable that the New Testament doesn't just quote specific Bible passages to prove things. Matthew is probably one of the best examples of that. It does do that. But it fits it into the framework of the story of Christ and his church, because it does the same kind of quotation to prove things in talking about, say, Judas in the book of Acts. But it also uses stories as paradigms for how the world relates to God's people, Israel, that is the church of God. And so that's how Paul can say something in like, you know, first Corinthians or second Corinthians about being baptized into Moses or Moses providing a certain kind of ministry in that contrast with Paul's ministry, they think about those stories as instructive also for them, not just historical facts, as if history is just a set of things preserved in the past, rather than something to learn from very concretely right now. So that that way of reading scripture that is native to scripture, I think we have rarely done, we have rarely known those scriptures maybe as well as we should have, and we pay the price for it every time we can't see analogs, links, illumination from scripture on our daily lives. Can you pinpoint when the abstract thinking, like what epoch of the Lutheran movement in America, uh, when it 
when it was really overrun by such abstract thinking, or is that something that we've had all the way back to the golden age and the dogmaticians? I don't, I don't really know about the dogmaticians, honestly. I mean, I know a great deal more about, you know, American religious history than I do about say Germany in the 17th century. I do know that we, I think dropped something in our eagerness to change. And I don't, I, I, I obviously, and it, it, this is not even my church in this ethnic religious sense, right? I'm, you know, a wild olive tree here grafted onto Missouri and Israel. But I, I, I think that the, the thing that happens here is that there is a coherent culture that people are desiring to protect that gets reduced to certain markers such as the Lutheran school system, the Concordias, the seminaries, whatever, rather than being kind of a world that people live in, which has its own non-rational subconscious reasons to be preserved, right? So to give you a concrete example, I don't have a list of reasons that I love my children, right? Similarly, there should be, you know, maybe you could list five reasons that you're a Lutheran, but I would prefer if beyond that five, there were a thousand and five that you couldn't quite put into words. That's the kind of belonging that allows people to go to death for things, that allows them to want to preserve things for hundreds of years. If that doesn't exist, or if your convictions are just on the level of sort of a certain set of rational things you were told in Bible class, or in a sermon or in confirmation class, then of course, your resistance to challenges, especially challenges that come in on a subconscious level, like activating your fear of death, or activating your fear of social disapproval. Of course, those challenges will be able to undermine things that are relatively superficial convictions. And I think that has happened to us very obviously, because even lines that we thought mattered in say the past 20 years, like, oh, this congregation has liturgical worship, that didn't matter when it came to closing your church. That yeah. didn't prove to be an, an effective barrier. No, there, so, there hasn't been yeah. any, it would seem. Not not so, as a whole, not as a unit. Yeah, not as a unit. So that that's something that we're trying to help create here is maybe some rational convictions. We can't do everything. We can't create those deep ties of belonging. That's work for local people, local pastors, local congregations. Uh, coordinated, obviously, but it has to be done on a local level because people's reasons for belonging to the Lutheran church should not be like stuff that we told you on the internet. I mean, that can help, but that's not going to do it. What, what are the reasons for belonging to the Lutheran church? I think, I, and this is where I, my children have an advantage over me, right? Is that I had rational reasons. Originally, the inerrancy of scripture and because of it, remnant, although not always worked out very carefully, opposition to women's ordination. Okay. That's why I came to Lutheran church from the Episcopal church. My children have a sense of this as not their adoptive mother, but their natural mother. This church is their natural mother. They don't, you know, before they took communion, they had to learn Luther's small catechism. These are the hymns they've always known. Uh, this is the way they've always worshipped. So their sense of belonging is by intention deeper than mine, right? 
And those reasons will extend down into, I can't really articulate my faith without using words that I learned in this church. I can't really articulate why I get up in the morning without using words that I learned from the Bible that I learned here and the catechism that I learned here and the hymns that I learned here. And those are not, you know, just methods of social control. This is a fruitful thing in the same way that, you know, a family that's actually doing what it's supposed to do is not a method merely of controlling people. It's a way of fostering life, abundant life. And I think that's what my children know their entire lives in the Lutheran church, also my wife, in a way that I have not, that I've come to later. And so, you know, my convictions, I think, you know, if maybe articulate are in their own way more shallow than many other people, because I have come to this, you know, as one untimely born, let's say. I'm going to bring some of this up, I think, at the start of of the next show and and move into the year that was and our our topics here. Um, Not that this didn't have anything to do with the year that was, um, but it's, um, yeah, I I think there's a lot more that we can say, but I also want to to push us forward. Not forgetting kind of a theme, perhaps, wider than the Lutheran Church's epistemological crisis, yeah, maybe, uh, existential crisis, you know, that we dropped something. In our zeal to change, I think that maybe has has a lot to imply on American society over the last what generation and a half, two generations. Um, and I don't know that this, you know, your, your topics you have topics you have laid out for us here uh, dovetail directly into that. But without question, you know, the insurrection on January sixth betrays a <laughs> a change, a change yeah. in the way that the United States views itself. If nothing else, I mean, what what it convinced me is that we don't exist as constituted. Whatever we thought we were, there was some dude holding up a shaman stick over the top of all of it, and whether or not he spent any time in jail, which I believe he still is, right? Um, it, 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 <laughs> um, the sacred halls weren't sacred anymore, and they're not going to be sacred again anytime soon. Well, I think the invocation of religious language about something that was not designed to be religious, something that was designed to be religiously neutral for a country of assorted Protestant denominations, that is significant. Also, the terror that at least some of the legislators felt, allegedly, I mean, maybe they were, at people who were unarmed coming into uh, what was at one time called the People's House. So the language of insurrection is language that the last time it was used in a widespread way was by the North during the Civil War or in the run-up to the Civil War, as well as during the war. The idea that the people who are against us, although not in this case taking up arms or threatening to fire on Fort Sumter, but simply you know, trespassing, which is all that they were eventually charged with after spending months in all kinds of horrid jail conditions, largely being mocked by the uh, African immigrant jailers who were posted to them, uh, maybe because they would have no sympathy with these people, uh, laughed at when they sang the Star Spangled Banner together in prison. Those people were discussed as if they had taken up arms against the United States, were trying to murder the president or murder legislators. The legislators were allegedly in fear for their lives. And this is something that if we didn't actually have an erection, uh, uh, insurrection on January 6th, we, we have had, I think, what you rightly identified as a complete change in how we see this, where 
we're largely now discussing the United States as if it is at least two completely different entities, depending on who you are. So Nancy Pelosi just yesterday, as we record this, uh, stopped giving her press conference about Build Back Better because the crowd started chanting, let's go, Brandon. And she claimed that she was in fear for her life. So on the one side, you have this apparently sacred set of instruments of apparently democratic government, even though when the state of West Virginia exercises its sovereignty through Senator Manchin, that is decried as, you know, a couple hundred thousand rednecks ruling over the nation, even though that is, I mean, that's the way that our republic is set up, that that's how the Senate functions. This apparently sacred thing that has been defiled, Okay, and defiled by Americans expressing their displeasure uh, with the way that things had gone in the months up to January 6, 2021. On the other hand, and this is why, you know, QAnon was just never attractive to me, is what sounds like a very credulous or unaware invocation of certain things that have very little purchase on reality at this point, such as the government will right itself if the right procedures are followed. And I mean, we did shows on the Electoral Count Act of 1883. It's not that procedures are unreal or that what I called earlier inside the system solutions are unreal, but the earnest invocation of those things as if that is the only hope we have is very unreal. And the reason that it's unreal is not because those things are wonderful or flawed in themselves necessarily either way. It's simply because opponents of those things, opponents of the folks gathered in Washington at the very beginning of this year, they're not operating in, I mean, they're not operating in view of any of that, right? I mean, think about the way that executive orders operate at this point. Executive orders can, through federal regulation, at least according to their proponents, regulate functionally the daily lives of the vast majority of Americans. Originally, they're supposed, they're they're simply supposed to be clarifications of how the executive branch of the government carrying out the laws established by the representative branch of government and simply interpreted, not finalized or clarified or overruled forever by the judicial branch. Executive orders are just basically guidance on how to do your job better. That's how it's supposed to function. Now they can become somehow unconstitutionally guidance on how you need to live your life so that you can stop being so selfish, you unvaccinated swine, right? The reason that that is the case is because they don't care. (laughs) They simply don't care. And many of us for a long time were cheering on this not caring about the constitutional republic when it came to the military and military intervention. They simply don't care how any of this is supposed to function. They don't care. So invocation of it just sounds naive on some level. You're not, you're not, you're not making war on somebody who agrees on the rules of the game. Okay. You're trying to beat somebody at football and they're playing soccer. Okay. Like they're playing a completely different game than you. So you have to just accept that and react to that rather than saying, 
well, if we just get enough, you know, good people on the Supreme Court or, or whatever, because you don't know that any of that's going to work. And in the case of Amy Coney Barrett, which I had many friends loved Amy Coney Barrett, so great, so wonderful. Look what she's doing. Look what she refuses to do. Okay. Indiana's a deep red state and we have vaccine mandates at our two major state universities. That's not true in most uh, blue states that you have vaccine mandates at your major public universities. And that's because Amy Coney Barrett just refused to deal with the problem. She said, no, that's okay. The circuit ruling can stand. So I, the, the folks gathered on January 6th, I'm sure many of them are wonderful people. I know many of them were. Um, I've met some of them. But it's the naivete that is heartbreaking to me that they think that this is some kind of functional country that will recognize their legitimate grievances if they protest in public. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my struggle is that the opposite of naivete is nonetheless stasis. Like there, there isn't really a way to fight back against the FBI. Well, I think that there, there, there is always there are always things that can be done. Stasis is stasis is, I think, usually a lack of imagination, honestly, especially especially in in political questions. Right. So you can accept that you have lost battles. But if you think about this as a war, then there's simply another way to fight battles or there's another battle that can be fought or whatever the case may be. So in the case of the FBI, there is distrust of FBI on the left. I mean, I think this is this is just one example of a tactic you could take. You could say that the you could you could begin to ally with elements of the left that have wanted to abolish the FBI for a long time. They do still exist. I think one of the things that you can see that has been politically wise about, let's say, the Democratic Party, not the left generally or even sincerely, but the Democratic Party is that they have been able to cobble together coalitions. We talked about a few months back how I think that they are somewhat stupidly trying to break up one of those coalitions by creating this new category of the unvaccinated, which also includes many generally democratic constituencies such as blacks and Hispanics. Okay. And that that is unwise because that could ally those people with very right wing white Republicans. The right would be wise to find anyone who has any doubts about, for instance, transgenderism on the left. Those people do exist. Many people just say things because they know they're expected to say them. It doesn't mean they sincerely believe it. Similarly, there are people who don't believe that we should have any of the alphabet soup agencies also on the left. We have generally not pursued any of those things. Another example of this would be, let's say you're on the right. You remember Pizzagate. You have followed Epstein. You have followed the Ghislaine Maxwell stuff. Guess what? Whitney Webb, who is by no means some kind of uh, you know right wing uh, you know internet national socialist, Whitney Webb is the person who recorded Maria Farmer's testimony about Epstein and Maxwell, about you know their kind of Jewish supremacism. All of that was recorded by Whitney Webb. Okay, look her up. So there are people out there. I think that the the sense of stasis, or there's nowhere left to go is a lack of imagination. And the reason that the imagination is constrained by these things is because when the rules don't work, people on the right seem to just throw their hands up. 
because I think, because whatever, psychologically, I don't know why they're conditioned to think that the current rules of the game are all that there is. <laughs> and if those aren't working for you, you just have to give up. You lost. Well, and this, the, the system yeah. seems too big to change. It seems too big to think outside of all the, all the categories are macro and to reorient the thinking to, to micro to, yeah. to finding what's near is, um, it's easy to talk about it, but it's harder to do it. Well, I think that it's hard to do if you think that your job is to handle everything. Your job may just be to handle your HR department at your work with the other people who don't like what it's trying to tell you to do, right? Or your local school board or whatever. No one has to fix everything, right? And if you look at things that are too big, of course, you're going to get depressed and dispirited and do nothing and just let it happen. Okay. If you are capable, and this is why being sociable and helpful is more important to begin with than many other things, which is why they want you wearing masks all the time and not going out of your house. So you don't know how to interact with, or even trust anyone else or have a conversation. If you can do those things, then you can have groups and groups get a lot more that they want than individuals do. Okay. So there is no group of Marines that can organize into a union. So they have to get vaccinated or be discharged. Guess what? Postal workers don't. I wonder why that is. So if you can organize, if you can take some of the tactical political lessons that the left has has given to you in the past half century, then you will begin to see possibilities that you didn't see before. So were there any other insurrections besides that that terrifying, amazing overthrow, almost overthrow <laughs> right. the government on the that system. overthrow where they took pictures and, you know, walked My inside. Was, I saw a guy, ropes. I saw a guy, uh, you know, just recently that it was a, a number of his shots and he, you know, he, first he's outside drinking a beer then mm-hmm. he's inside drinking a beer. I mean, it's all him drinking a beer everywhere in, in this place. And, and it's, the guy was again in prison, you know, for that. Yep. 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 I think, an, an insurrection that is occurring, um, and this is a little farther down the list that we're working off of today, but I want to make sure that it doesn't get skipped, is the incredible spike in violence of all kinds, especially murders, but really of all kinds, personal crimes, property crimes in basically every American city. There are very few exceptions. The exceptions are largely, to my knowledge, which is limited, the same kinds of cities, usually southern cities that did not see major George Floyd riots or disturbances in 2020. But for example, in the city of Philadelphia, a formerly much improved city, a story much like New York's uh, in the past 20 years, George Soros-backed District Attorney Larry Krasner has denied outright that there is any spike in violence, even while, I mean, and like most major American cities, Philadelphia is a one-party state, even while the almost entirely Democratic City Council and you know City Council President Daryl Clark are pleading directly with citizens to stop killing each other. So the question is, how long will people put up with the idea that their children could be walking, you know, three blocks down the street to go buy, you know, bubble gum or whatever, 
and they could just be killed randomly. And not only will the police not be there, they won't even really investigate. And in Philadelphia, this is, I mean, and this is, this is not occasion for gloating. There was a guy who was a head of the temple Marxists. That's the Marxist. I mean, just openly student organization at Temple University, one of my (laughs) alma maters. And he was kind of, you know, uh, kind of standard uh, college leftist, very, very anti-Trump, obviously, but, you know, kind of virulently anti-white, angry on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. He was killed earlier this year in a carjacking that, that turned into a murder. And uh, this is something where his own student organization of which he was president at Temple got angry at the university for saying that they were going to beef up policing (laughs) um, in order to protect Temple students, faculty and staff. So that's that's your left. Right. We're we're angry because the solution is not to protect people. It's to, you know, see the underlying uh, underlying causes of the violence. The other sick part of this story is that the only reason that his murderer has been found is because the murderer turned himself in. Wow. Krasner was reluctant even to try to find the murderer, despite the horrible publicity that this provided. And so I think people are, because it's gone into viral videos, they're very familiar with property crimes, especially in places like San Francisco. Okay. But it is the fact of random and constant violence, right? Especially, and even for protected classes, right? So Philly, Philly is roughly 40 some percent white, 40 some percent black, the rest, you know, Asian, Hispanic, whatever proportions. Okay. So blacks are 40 some percent, I don't know, 44%. I don't really know of the Philadelphia population. They're like 85% of the people that get murdered in Philadelphia. Okay. So you have a protected class. You have the major protected class in Philadelphia city politics, and they are not even being protected by this regime. Okay. So the regime isn't even doing things that we have seen. This has changed in American healthcare this year, where certain treatments are rationed based on protected class status. You know, in Colorado, are you vaccinated or unvaccinated when you come into the hospital? In New England, um, I've seen in Massachusetts and Vermont, are you white or non-white? Because if you're white, you you may receive, depending on your condition and the problem, a lesser degree of care than non-whites, right? Because, you know, because they've suffered from racism for years or whatever the case may be. However, even in this case in Philadelphia, where the protected class are the major group disproportionately out of, you know, so 40% suffering at an 80% rate from this problem, you will not even be protected by this regime. And that is a level of delivery or non-delivery in this case on promises that it is kind of new. Okay. So you know, I said earlier, there's a certain naivete in thinking that this constitutional republic functions the way it should. There's also a naivete in thinking that this is, quote, big city machine politics. Look, you go back in time, you look at what happens with a, with a 
political machine. Okay. Read a, a nice book called Plunkett of Tammany Hall, you know, recorded interviews with a guy that was inside the Tammany Hall Democratic machine, Irish immigrant serving Irish immigrants in New York in the 19th century. His people aren't getting randomly killed. His people are getting jobs. Okay. His people are getting protected. <laughs> okay. One of them dies, you know, not of being shot to death in the middle of the street, but just of, let's say, a heart attack or something. He's going to take care of the widow and the children for the rest of their lives. That's what political machines do for their people. This is not a political machine. <laughs> this, is, this is some kind of machine, and it is political, but it's not a political machine. Otherwise, it would protect its own voters at the very least. So that is also a change. Not e our, our machines don't even do what machines are supposed to do which is not just give you jobs, but ensure that say, I don't know, you can walk to the store three blocks away and not worry about whether or not you're going to die. Which brings me back to a thought that uh, I know we've talked about before. It's been a while, I think. Uh, but that, that <laughs> it's just evidence that the collapse everyone's waiting for has already occurred. And it is, <laughs> yes. it is a collapse of incompetence on nearly every level. That wherever there is supposed to be a watcher, the watcher's asleep. That the rubber stamp may still be in use, but the rubber stamp isn't actually getting the paperwork to go where it goes to get done what's supposed to be done. Rather, it's just sitting somewhere else on another desk. Meanwhile, everyone is what grabbing what they can while they can and or hoping it all gets better if they put their head in the sand. Yeah. And I think that this enables you to go back in time and, you know, Philadelphia, I know probably better than any American city. You go back in time, you had the same reality in Philly in the 70s. Okay. Same enormous spike in violence. At the time, the election of Frank Rizzo to as mayor of Philadelphia to remedy that and his supporters, generally ethnic Catholics of various kinds, Italians, Irish, Poles, that was derided as racist. And in fact, his statue was taken down from in front of the you know, city office building because of his, quote, racism. Now you learn that maybe those people weren't irrationally reacting to people who, quote, just had a different skin color. Maybe they were reacting to actual violence and the threat of violence. Because one thing that you can see is that when the regime chooses to ignore your suffering, it will find a label to put on you so that it doesn't have to pay attention to you. And I think that the folks in even major protected classes will learn that they don't matter to our overlords either. Whites certainly don't matter, but they don't matter either. So hitching your wagon to resentment against racist white people or something won't even serve you in the short term, let alone the long term, because the regime doesn't care about you. It's not a regime that is advocating for any human being at all. It might be devoted, for instance, to letting certain parts of Chicago or Philadelphia or elsewhere go to ruin right now so that it can be redeveloped later on at a profit, a significant profit, once commercial real estate is allowed to return to previous levels. But it doesn't care about you now or later. So is the insulation of those who are profiting from this something that um, can be exposed or seen, or is it just... It, individual operators, sole operators. Yeah, I think a lot of it can be seen in things like stock sales. For example, we had 
we had this year actual public challenges to the idea that you know public representatives are currently allowed to trade stock even though they have the very definition of insider information that was rejected by in this case Nancy Pelosi most prominently as you know that would be a violation of the fact that we have a free market economy <laughs> so there there is an insulation and that insulation is preserved largely through money right it's it's preserved through the fact that only now after months and months of upheaval such as we just discussed are people in you know fairly wealthy neighborhoods of Los Angeles seeing the kind of random crime random violence that people in poorer neighborhoods have been dealing with for a long time obviously but especially the past 20 months 24 months so the insulation is there coordination is also obviously there through the institutions that these people attend for quote education through things like the council on foreign relations through the united states congress there is insulation there but i think that part of the tone that you can see being taken especially by parts of our regime shows you that some of that insulation is wearing thin that it's they're getting colder than they used to the insulation's not working the way it used to because there is a brittleness or an anger in their tone which we've discussed with you know Biden's tone toward the unvaccinated but you can see in other cases they are i think feeling their grip on things slipping because even places that are thoroughly governed by our regime's priorities are places of chaos and um, just this week the as we as we record not as this comes out um, the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, is enraged on camera about the amount of violence in her city. Well, you know, there, if you want to have a job at all, or if you have any semblance of humanity, even if you have devoted your entire life to propping up this regime, you have to recognize that lives are being destroyed indiscriminately, both materially, um, but also financially, by what is happening. And so if you have any investment in anything, uh, in any city, anywhere, you, you, you want to do something. You can see some of them maybe rethinking that, most of them not, many of them doubling down on their priorities, on their insistences, on their tone. So that is just one of the things that I think makes our regime so unstable is that you can see that our elites do not feel secure in themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, well, they shouldn't, not that I would advocate violence against them, but I think it's inevitable uh, that it's going to happen uh, because when the elites do not protect those below and the violence gets rough enough, the finger is just going to be pointed up. And, and if the mayor of the city can't do anything about the violence yeah. be besides throw a fit and like plead with people to be nice to each other without saying right. that this is a matter of policy enacted, then again, you know, uh, these are the people for whom the guillotine came. Yeah. And I think that this, re this relates to something else I want to make sure that we discuss, which is the question of vaccination, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports. And some folks were wondering on the discord, if our elites themselves actually receive these vaccines with their, you know, connections to significant injuries, 
to at least some segment of the population. So do they themselves receive these things? The question was specifically about, you know, uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, right, right. Um, about that. who has who has been avoiding the public eye noticeably for a man who has sought the public eye for a long time, the past 25 years, especially, and, and looks good in public. <laughs> so he has had, uh, you know, no cosmetic reason to avoid cameras his whole career, but he's been on a lot of vacation of recent weeks. And it, it may be that the place that he went on vacation specifically in Mexico is a good place to be injected with stem cells um, in a way that is completely illegal in the United States. So you'd have to go to that location in Mexico. That would be closest to where he lives to go on quote vacation. You know, he may be suffering from Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is as I believe, um, and as many doctors now believe what FDR suffered from, not polio. He did not manifest the, 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 the symptoms of polio. He manifested the symptoms of GBS. And that, that may be what has happened to Newsom. I, I do not think that our regime is actually entirely avoiding vaccination themselves. And the reason that I don't think that is because I think that there is an element of belief required. I, I do not think that these people are entirely cynical. Okay. Like I think they believe a lot and many of them, maybe not all, but many of them believe most of what they are telling us. Now, some of it, no. And, and we've called attention to that. And that's why at the beginning of this year, we did some episodes on the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s, because there is an element of incredible cynicism. If you go back and look at some of those pronouncements about communism and the proletariat, et cetera, these guys don't believe their own stuff anymore. Okay. And there, there might be an element of that when our regime is talking about things like, you know, our, you know, beloved democratic process or democracy dies in darkness. Okay. Thank you. Washington post, longtime friend of the central intelligence agency, democracy dies in darkness. Nonetheless, I think they are being vaccinated. I think that some of them, just like some of us are being harmed by these uh, rushed injections of whatever nature. And so I think that this is, this is also an unstable element of our future as it was a very strange thing to watch occur this past year, this year now almost gone, is the fact that our regime is apparently cannibalistic, that even investment in it may not pay off for you, even if you were or have been elevated by that same regime, right? So in the same way that certain protected classes may not actually be benefited by adherence to that regime, okay, I'm willing to bet that Blacks in Philadelphia being reliable Democratic voters as a class probably voted for DA Larry Krasner, probably upwards of 90%, just guessing, right? As a group, you could probably go find those stats. I'm also betting that there are plenty of people that are currently at things like Harvard Business School and the Aspen Institute in Colorado, et cetera, who sincerely believe most of what they're telling other people to believe. I just don't think that's going to pay off for them. And I think some of them will realize that. I don't know what happens at that point. I don't know what happens to the thousands of service members who the regime is going to have to do something with because they're unvaccinated right now. Okay. But if you once believed in this and now you don't, where do you go next? That's an unstable element of our future. 
Yeah, the worship of Tutulu doesn't go well. It, it it really doesn't. It all kind of collapses on itself in chaos. And that's where uh, uh, Dark Ages, uh, Dark Ages being upon us, I, I think that that is um, not an overstatement. And I think that um, there is no way to imagine what that looks like. I, I, I you can you can zombify it as much as you want. Um, what it means is that there's going to be a lot of isolated death, uh, a lot of corporate death, um, a lot of people trying to get theirs however they can, and a at a, a very slow dawning of the realization that that if you don't have a a local support system, if you do not have an actual community, then you are in great jeopardy. And you are out there for the demons to grab whenever they feel like grabbing you. And they will string you along as long as they need to, to keep you doing their bidding. But it's only going to be toward your own eventual insanity. Yeah, I mean, in, investment in the word system is kind of hackneyed, but investment in a set of assumptions and consensuses and ways of doing things that is that are falling apart for many and sundry reasons is not investment in a future in which you will be taken care of or protected. And it's very interesting to me, a book that we're going to be talking about in the coming year, Tragedy and Hope, which is an explanation not so much of how we got here precisely, but how we got about two steps before right where we are now by Carol Quigley, he identifies one of the major distinctions of the West, by which he doesn't just mean Christian nations, he means like the European Peninsula and the British Isles, specifically, um, and mostly Northwestern Europe. One of the things that is historically distinctive about their experience is that they went through a time in which life went on, but there wasn't much of a state to speak of. And that is the, the collapse of Roman government in the West. I mean, the Brits can actually date this. <laughs> this is the year when the legions left Britain. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that, that differs even from anything that was influenced mostly by Byzantine Christianity, where the empire did not collapse in the same way. There was always government and the things that were erected later on, such as Russia, were erected in that image where government is essential to life. I think a lot of Americans have lived, at least in the past 50 years, more in a Byzantine than in a classically, in these medieval terms, Latin or Western way. That is, they have presumed that the regime, as they are familiar with it, is natural and obvious. The reason that they're shocked or worried or horrified about what is to come, either in 2022 or later, is because they're still hanging on to an understanding of life that is wrapped up in the existence of the state, along with its usually, in our case, unofficial appendices, such as Hollywood or the news media. As we said before, not much difference really between those two versions of the media. The educational system, which we discussed quite a bit this year, they think that all of that is like, it has to be there. Like life can't go on without it. And the sooner that you just think, what if, <laughs> what if that's not there? What if I entertain myself? What if I educate my children? What if the sooner that you're able to ask that question for yourself and then get other people to ask it with you, 
the better off you are because you're just better prepared, not for being a prophet and knowing everything that's going to happen and every challenge that you'll face, but you're much better prepared for a situation that, like you say, rightly, we're already in. It's already over. Okay. We, we don't have these discussions. People don't behave this way if much of this is not already totally bankrupt. So if the bank's already broken, how are you going to support yourself? And if you start asking what if questions, then you're much better prepared for what's to come, whatever it is, than worrying or wondering when, you know, X element of already condemned falling in building finally falls down. I can't emphasize enough in the the what if and the answer here, something that I, I don't see enough of, but I, I don't know, where am I looking? Probably not in the right places, but straight up repentance and prayer to a holy God to preserve, protect, and keep enough order that the average man, Christian or otherwise, who seeks the goodwill of his neighbor is not overrun by the absolute chaos of, of the demonic destruction. And I, 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 I feel like there's still just way too much sitting back and watching another movie as opposed to some, some God on a sackcloth, dust and ashes. And not that it's up to us legalistically to earn the salvation. Um, but if it will not come from the hand of, of Jesus Christ, King of the universe, then I don't think it's coming at all. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to, I can just emphasize that, that uh, where you are right now, there is nothing you can do more important than get on your knees and tell Jesus you're sorry for worshiping this beast as it falls into the sea. Uh, you do not want this beast to be your God, that you're tired of hoping in its resurrection, and that you would rather instead have your hands equipped to live today with your neighbor in peace and quietness. And that if there be any path to that, to, to beg him, to implore him, to open your eyes, to see that path for moving forward. Um, yeah. You want to comment on that? Or I really want to talk about the transitory nature, nature of inflation. I think that's important. <laughs> can't go without yeah. that one. Yeah, let's do inflation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw, what was it, Tucker Carlson uh, did a bit about how, uh, you know, the the federal government has said it's 7%. He's like, get liars. Yeah, and he gives us all these various, you know, numbers, uh, 30%, 40%. So depending on what you're trying to buy, the actual cost of goods is continuing to rise. Uh, they're done printing money, maybe, for now, although the debt ceiling just went up, what, $2 trillion? I mean, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, ah, so I'll let you talk instead. I think that this is this is an example of how revolution has been turned into a permanent institutional priority of all kinds. So if you have to, you know, revisit your privilege every so often and whatever else, you also will have to come back to revisiting the value of a dollar constantly because yeah, even if they stop, you know, the same degree of quantitative easing, which was unprecedented over the past 24 months in American history, that still has not reached us fully, everyday consumers, all the way from, you know, what the Federal Reserve or the Department of the Treasury have carried out. So the word transitory was used earlier in the year to describe the nature of inflation. Um, official estimates being 7%, but that 
even itself, just that basket of goods, let's say, not only excluding certain staples of life, uh, everyday life in modern America, but not even using the same formula they used to use. And if you use their formula from you know, a few years ago, you would get 15% inflation on that same group of things, which is incredibly high. So when you have a situation like this, the last time we had anything like this in the late 70s, we clamped down incredibly hard. It was extremely painful. And we'll talk about that next week, as well as we look forward, is what could the nature of that be? Because when if, if they try to preserve the dollar as something solvent, right? So people say, oh, well, it's going to turn into Venezuela, or it's going to turn into Zimbabwe, or we're going to have hyperinflation. Okay, if they're doing that, then what, what are we going to use now for international finances reserve currency? Uh, they would have to drop the dollar altogether, okay, which is possible, okay, it's just not as probable as the idea that they would instead clamp down on its devaluation, which would check inflation for the consumer, but it would be incredibly hard for people dependent on lending, such as farmers, who paid enormously along with homeowners in the early 80s for how we lived in the 70s. So not only are you seeing ongoing and constant economic change, also in your daily life, not just in the realm of you know, reports about you know, the, the Fed's open market committee meetings, but you're also seeing that your capacity to live a solvent life and to build up some wealth of your own is totally unimportant to this regime because it could get to the point, you're not going to be able to make payments on your house because you bought your house with you know our absurdly low interest rates of the past few years. And now you're going to go back up to you know Paul Volcker era levels of uh, interest rates. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think what happened near the end of the year was that Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, said clearly, uh, this inflation thing is not transitory. <laughs> so if that's totally true, or if they try to clamp down on it, somebody does, both are going to be, it's going to be rough, rough sailing for us. What does that mean? That means that our standard of life, okay, standard of living being kind of an economist term, but just let's say, you know, the way that you're accustomed to living, the variety of stuff that you have available to you, how frequently you get new things, how much you focus on consumer experiences and their meaningfulness to you. That is a result of the fact that you have lived in a country that was the, that was the guarantor of the world's reserve currency since the Second World War. Your great-grandparents didn't live this way. And your grandparents may remember not having lived this way. Most people don't remember anything else. And people that came here since that time came here to experience living in the economy and under the regime that was the guarantor of the world's reserve currency. So we get to take on absurd levels of debt and we get stuff in return, cars and electronics and just amazing amounts of stuff. If that is altered permanently and fundamentally, okay, then your, your way of accustomed living and the stuff that you spend money on and where you go and how you live and 
that is probably going to change. And this isn't just about supply chain shortages. This is about you're no longer so important to the functioning of the world financial system. And that would be a new thing for almost every American because not necessarily within living, you know, not within living memory. I mean, my grandparents certainly remember a time before this, um, certainly where, where they're from, but they, they don't, they haven't functionally been adults for any length of time in a situation other than the expectation of ongoing, if sometimes temporarily halted prosperity. And if that goes away, then a lot of things will change. My mom told me that my grandmother used to wash the tinfoil to reuse it. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's the kind of thing it makes me think of there. Right, right. Which is not, I mean, it's not the end of the world. It's just a set of habits and behaviors and presumptions about the way life works that are very foreign to most of us. I think it's going to be the end of the world for most 20 year olds. It, it, is, <laughs> it, it, is, it is more than their mind can bear. Uh, what does international pressure uh, have to do with this? And does China have uh, a vested interest in knocking us out of that reserve currency position? Yeah. So the question you have to ask yourself vis-a-vis -vis China is, is China thinking of us as a ladder and they've climbed to the top of the ladder or they're near the top of the ladder and they don't need us like they used to? Or is China thinking of us as kind of a brother and they will work with us on a more or less semi-permanent basis? The last time that there was something in doubt about who was the major player in international finance, we, with a group of people that we had a lot more in common with and a much better understanding of, that is the British, we agreed in a certain relationship where we were the superpower and they were necessary to the functioning, especially the financial functioning of that power arrangement. The Chinese, <laughs> they're not our cousins. They not seem even. closer to Russia than us. <laughs> yeah, not in any conceivable way are they our cousins. And we have no historic relationship to them, anything like our relationship to Great Britain. So I do not foresee their needing us or even relying on us, not even in a vestigial way, maybe, maybe only as a the way they sort of treat Australians, where they bribe their politicians and then buy up their real estate, maybe as a way of storing value, as they do in, say, Vancouver, British Columbia as well. But they don't need Canada or Australia. And I, I don't suspect that they will think that they need us either eventually. So we, we've gone past our hour, but we still have at least two more topics to touch on here. Uh, I love the way you put this in your notes. You know, papers, please, but not if you're coming across the Rio Grande. Yeah, that's a fun one. <laughs> well, the Democratic Party has for a long time tried to import a voter base. That has not, you know, and, and they've been fairly clear about that. that. That is why they generally are pretty reliably do not enforce immigration law in the past several decades, certainly. The irony, the ironies of these things and, and the and the blatancy of these things really amped up in the past year because, you know, there are discussions of what a mandate is, you know, do you do you, do you need to present your vaccine passport to eat at an Applebee's in New York City? But you <laughs> you don't need anything of any kind, no proof whatsoever do you need if you come across the Rio Grande in the United States, wherever it is that you're coming from. And so something that we've seen in this year, also to some degree at the northern border, but but much more obviously at the southern border, 
is the movement, not even so much of Mexicans, okay, from Mexico, but of lots of people, not even just Central Americans, but but Africans. So people that have come by very long circuitous routes to our southern border in order to get into the United States in hope on their part of economic opportunity, in hope on the part of our regime, I think, of further reinforcement of their, you know, certain, you know, potential protected classes, voter bases, right? So, you know, you need a vaccine passport maybe to get into a grocery store in LA County, depending, although the sheriff doesn't want to enforce that. But, you know, you, you're not going to need anything, any kind of proof like that to vote. <laughs> so there's a very, the, the blatancy of the way that our regime relies upon certain forms of stringency and then total laxity for other groups in other realms of life, that has become much more obvious because our immigration difficulties, I mean, just on the level of, let's say that you wanted every single one of these folks to come into the United States this year, you still need to figure out how to provide for them if you're going to do that. And the ways that the regime has come up with this year, such as, you know, putting them on flights, you know, free flights to various American cities, et cetera, None of that has been very long range thinking at all and has blatantly contradicted their desire to impose restrictions on movement of American citizens inside the United States in various ways and at various levels. So that ha- that's something that I think will become more blatant. I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen with it. I don't know what investment a man from Guinea-Bissau has in American politics, if he finds himself having been, you know, plopped down in St. Louis or I don't know, Albuquerque earlier this year, but it is a strange set of circumstances that has really amped up in this year. Yeah. Well, at what point did they decide they don't want to come here? I mean, and maybe that's not ever, maybe they, they still think that there's <laughs> something, but it's like, you're just coming into where the violence is yeah, right now. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think you would need, you would need international awareness of very obvious economic, not just recession in the, you know, technical definition of it, but very obvious poverty increases. There are no jobs, et cetera, probably along with war zone conditions or knowledge of them. Right. So listeners now know, you know, you know, you may not want to, you know, buy your first home for your burgeoning family somewhere, you know, in North Philadelphia, just right now this year, probably, right. But somebody from Guinea-Bissau probably doesn't know that about the United States. He may have no concept of how violent certain places are in the United States or how difficult daily life may be. So he's still coming here. So So, in this way, then, then the immigrant is prey, right? Well, yeah, I mean, and that, that that goes along with this idea of, okay, you know, Larry Krasner's voting base in the city of Philadelphia, just because the regime has some use for you doesn't mean it, it's going to keep you safe, okay? So whether you're a white guy that signed up for the military 15 years ago and you can't take the vaccine, you just can't do it, so now you have hell to pay, okay, you you fit into a protected class. Thank you for your service. Please board the aircraft along with the, you know, families with small children. Please go first. Thank you for your service, blah, 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 blah. Now you're out. Well, 
That happens for the guy from Guinea-Bissau and the Mexican immigrant and the black guy in North Philadelphia sometimes too. Okay, this is this has not been a revelation this year of the regimes caring about anyone particularly. Let's finish up then with uh, exemption and opt out. Yeah, these are always selective categories. You have to realize in in order to start thinking creatively and imaginatively about the future that exemption is exemptions and opt outs or opt out or as a verb these are all negotiables. So if you're in the postal union, there's several of them, uh, one for rural carriers, one for folks that deliver in town and mail sorters, you get uh, a separate set of things, a separate set of conditions of life, even vis-a-vis the regime, not just generally, like, did you all agree that you were going to grow vegetables together? But just vis-a-vis our regime, you got a separate set of conditions from those poor Marines this year. So when you think about exemptions and opt-outs, especially when we're talking about inside the system, such as it is, such as it continues to be solutions, then keep thinking about how to work with people and how to press and what to press for as a church or as a group of people at work or as whatever you are. Um, and keep thinking collectively rather than thinking about how can I get people to just leave me alone? Because it just doesn't happen. <laughs> and it's much harder to get exemptions and opt-outs as we've learned this year, even within certain beastly legal systems and convoluted bureaucracies, if you're trying to do it on your own, than if you try to handle it realistically and collectively because it's been a better year for postal carriers and Jehovah's Witnesses in exemptions and opt-outs than it has been for people who try to act individually every once in a while when they simply can't cooperate any longer. Start advocating for yourselves collectively, whatever that collective is, and you'll probably get better results. That brings us back to where we started with the Lutheran Church and its lack of collective identity. So we're trying to change that. I mean, I'm trying to operate inside the system. I try to get Lutherans to, you know, listen to this. By the time this has come out, there will be a piece out at Gottesdienst called Whether the Unvaccinated Too Can Be Saved. Trying to spark discussion because as long as there are such systems and institutions, uh, we should use them for good if we possibly can. So, you know, I'm trying to get my own kinds of folks in the different realms that I'm in to care and to advocate for ourselves so we can continue existing. That's, <laughs> that's all we're asking for 2022. We want to continue existing. I'm waiting for the optimism to set in. Hey, man, I, that's optimistic to me. It's better than the, than the alternative. So, you know, I'll take what I can get and I'm thankful for anything I can get. So we got to start the conversation somewhere. Yeah, the sooner that we remember this is not our homeland. That we're intense, that we're on a journey, that it is a place of suffering, but the suffering has been endured in total by the king with the crown of thorns on him. Uh, The better off we're going to be seeing it's one day at a time. And remember, we're going to talk about the year that will be next year, but there's no guarantee that year is going to be at all. Maranatha, Advent, come Lord Jesus. You listen to Brief History of Power, you know where to find us or you would not be here.